Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn together to Hebrews chapter 5, which is on page 1003 in the church Bible. And before we read the Word of God, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we've opened our mouths to set forth your most worthy praise, so now we pray, open our ears to hear your most holy word, that we might henceforth live to your glory, through Christ our Lord, in and by your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Let's hear the word of God then from Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, where we're obviously breaking into a the flow of a passage, an argument, and he's deliberately now shifting our, our train of thought about this, what he's just been talking about. We have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying aside or laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. This is the word of the Lord. Human life, as distinct from divine life, is always changing. And what that means is this, that it is always easier, always easier to describe God than it is to describe ourselves. Now, you may at first think that that, I got that round the wrong way. I had to look at my notes to make sure I was getting it right the right way. It is, in fact, harder to describe ourselves than it is to describe God. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. One of the things we've learned as we've been studying Hebrews is that the God of the Bible is unchanged and unchanging. He simply is. In introducing Himself to us, He calls Himself, I am. He remains unchanged. He is never, God is never becoming something else. He is never growing in His knowledge, in His power, in His wisdom. He simply is. And although we may not be able to comprehend that, what that means, nonetheless, we can understand the statement, God remains unchanged. And however little we know of Him, or much we know of Him, at least we know this one thing about Him we know that what we know of Him, corresponding to our experience and understanding, what we know of God remains stable. Okay? We can be sure of that. He is a rock. 
unchanged and unchanging. Now that's a very vital truth, I think, for for all of us, that God remains unchanging. God, in his person, never changes. But you see, we cannot do the same with ourselves. What we can say about ourselves and of other people we know is never stable. It may be true for months, years, perhaps, but it is not uniformly true or constantly true throughout our lives. We are constantly changing physically, emotionally, intellectually, spiritually. Some of these changes are to be encouraged, of course. Other changes are to be avoided. When we come to this passage, the author is dealing with changes that are not changes for the better. They're changes for the worse. Uh, Our author has been introducing us to the great themes of Scripture, the great themes of who God is, who Christ is, and who Christ is for us in his human life. And here he breaks the flow of his teaching. Here he interrupts himself. He pauses for a moment from his instruction, and he looks his audience in the eye. And he has something to say to them and to us. And the thing that he addresses as he stops and pauses is not our intellectual competence to understand what he's been teaching thus far, but our spiritual condition in light of what he has been teaching thus far. And as he speaks to his audience, you must understand, he is not only talking to the audience who are hearing him then, he's talking to the audience that is hearing him now. And he addresses two very, very simple points. Although don't be, don't be uh, too excited that there are only two of them this morning. But two very simple points. One addresses where we may be, and the other addresses where we must be. I say where we may be, because we're not all necessarily in this room in the same place in our Christian lives. Now, let's follow and see how he addresses this. Verse 11, about this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain. What has our author been speaking about? Well, some people look back to the end of the previous verse, verse 10, and they see this reference to Melchizedek. And if you have even the most fleeting knowledge of the book of Hebrews, or you have ever tried to read the book of Hebrews, you've no doubt discovered Melchizedek's name and wondered what that was all about, and perhaps skipped over to chapter 11, which is so much easier to read and understand. But you see, he hasn't gotten to that bit yet. That's not particularly what he has in mind. You you don't raise somebody's name and then expect everybody knows what's coming next and that this is going to be hard to explain. No, what he's doing, if you look at the subject, what is the subject of this entire passage, beginning in chapter 5 and verse 5, right through to, to verse 10, he has been talking about Christ, the Messiah, who did not exalt himself, the one whom God set aside to be our Messiah. And now that he's been teaching us this doctrine about Christ, which he'll refer to in chapter 6, 
His argument, his arguments have been steady, they've been intense, they've been unrelenting as he's expounded the deity and the humanity of our Savior. And now he stops, as it were, in the middle of this overwhelmingly mental exercise of getting our heads around what can be got around with our, with our finite reason. He pauses for a moment, and he wants to put his finger on the spiritual progress, or otherwise, of those who have been listening to him. And he understands where some of us may be this morning, and where some people to whom he's originally writing found themselves in their day. And he puts his finger on the problem. He says, it is quite possible today that you find yourself in a position where you are lethargic and immature. Look at the way in which he expounds these two things. This is where we may be, he says. He talks about lethargy, first of all. Dull of hearing. Dull of hearing. Now, when he uses that expression, you understand he is not charging them or us with being either intellectually or spiritually inferior. We're all at various levels, intellectually, all at various levels, spiritually, and the Bible doesn't really care about where you are in, in, the, in the quotient of, of intellectual capacity. That's not really the Bible ever, the Bible's concern. The issue is not what we are by nature. Rather, if you read carefully here in verse 11, you'll notice that what is really his concern is what we have become and now are by default. Do you notice that? Read it again with me. Not out loud. I'll read it to you. Since you have become dull of hearing. What has been happening here? There has been a change a movement, a slippage, a regression has taken place. This very word, dull, means lethargic, slothful, careless. The word is used in Proverbs 22, verse 29, and there it is the opposite of being diligent, being focused, committed to something. In other words, it points to a, a reluctance, a dullness, uh, an inability to listen and to engage with what they've been doing when it comes to studying the Word of God. As Philip Edgecombe Hughes puts it, they have become slack, and in their slackness, they've been affected, has, they've affected their attentiveness and their capacity to receive and retain solid instruction. In fact, unless they do something about it, this is how serious it is, they will find themselves in the very same position as some people were in in Ezekiel's day when the Lord has to call them a rebellious house who have eyes to see but cannot see and ears to hear but cannot hear. And what, he's, what he has in mind, do you notice, what he has in mind is our hearing the oracles of God. The oracles of God, he mentions those in verse 12. Because God's Word is God's speech. The preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. And it requires a certain kind of response. It requires a certain kind of 
hearing. Back in the book of Acts, in chapter 16, we read about a woman called Lydia. Uh, And Luke tells of their encounter with this woman. One who heard us, he says, was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. Uh, She was a businesswoman, a seller of purple goods. Uh, She was, by her background and interest, a worshiper of God. But something happened there. Uh, The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. She was a hearer of the Word, and she went beyond that. She began to pay attention to that Word. She gave ear to it. She listened up. She gave her attention to. She gave herself to the Word of God preached by Paul. Now you see, there had been a time in the story of these Hebrews to whom this letter is written and when they too had heard the gospel. And they in the beginning they'd heeded the gospel. This is implied in verse 11, since you have become dull of hearing. There was a time when they were listening to the gospel. They were giving it their attention. They had embraced its truth. It got their attention. It exercised their minds But now that's changed. Now it has become a common thing to them. They thought they'd heard it all. They knew it all, that its truth had become something like the background music you hear playing in the gym or the elevator or the store, mere muzak. And the author is confronting them and us because we may, we may find ourselves here this morning. And he's saying to us, Do you not stir yourself to give attention to the Word of God? Or are you so easily distracted from it? Would you rather be entertained with trifles? Would you rather be served handy hints for Christian living? Would you rather have the so-called simple gospel than to hear the exposition of the whole counsel of God? You do not behave as those who know that these matters about which we've been dealing, says the author, are of first importance. That on these issues hangs your eternal bliss or your eternal loss. Do you know that these things will stretch your mind, challenge your will, test your faith, confront your sin, and save your soul? Right? So many people, I guess over the centuries and certainly today, many people, they had become so accustomed to the gospel that they loved its teaching so long as it did not take any intellectual effort on their part to get their heads around it. Whether it's because they think they know it all, whether they think they've heard it all, whether it's simply they cannot be bothered going any deeper, they are resisting the Word proclaimed. Jesus wasn't like that. He's just talked about Jesus. He's just told us that Jesus became perfect. I told you God doesn't change. The Lord Jesus took on our humanity, and in our humanity, He did change. Like us, He changed. He matured. He grew in wisdom and stature, we're told in the book of Luke. He's not growing in wisdom and stature as God, but He's growing in wisdom and stature as a man. 
And throughout his life, he grew. He learned obedience, the writer has just said. And how did he learn obedience? How did he grow in his, in his human life? How did he grow? His obedience and his growth sprang from his responsive hearing of the Word of God. That was their Lord Jesus. But here are these people. And they may be people here this morning. And though their Lord undertook all of that so that in his flesh he might grow to maturity and to perfection. These people. These people who knew him and who trusted him are reluctant to make any effort, show any diligence to find out all they possibly can about such a Savior, such a Messiah, as God had sent to them and for them. What a tragedy. You see the difficulty facing this preacher, and I guess most preachers, is that their listeners were not just mentally lazy, they were spiritually resistant to what was being preached. It it wasn't that what the author was saying was too difficult for an ordinary mind to grasp. He was teaching mysteries that were deep and weighty. But where you don't grasp them, you believe them. Where you can't get your head around them, you trust God's Word about them. But these people were pushing it away. They were resenting it. They were resisting it. And you can understand why. You can understand why, I think. If uh, you take what he has written about God, for example, in this book, right from the very beginning, he has, he has delineated the enormous distance between God and creatures. He has demonstrated that, that God and creatures are, by definition, distinct beings, that creatures cannot reason from where they are back into God. That though creatures may be like God in certain characteristics, God is not like us. God is not like us. He repeats that so many times in the Bible so that we get the message. God is not like us. So when we take human categories and language and we use it of God, remember, we never use those categories or the language in the same way when talking about God as when we are talking about ourselves. Somebody raised a question, and I'll answer it tonight in greater depth if somebody asks it then, or I ask myself it again this evening. But you take the use of the word person. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. When we use the word persons, I remember as a little boy being in an elevator, they call it a lift there in Glasgow somewhere, and and I remember reading very clearly because I was very short, I was eye level with the bottom of the bit where the buttons were, and it said there that the elevator was uh, safe for up to eight persons. It stuck in my mind because there must have been 30 people in that blessed elevator. It felt like it. And I was a bit tad worried. 
Well, I survived that, as you can see. When we use the word persons, we usually mean people, don't we? But when we use the word persons of God in theological language, everybody who, used, who, who started using that said, when we use this word about God, we are not thinking, we've got to put out of our minds every other usage of the word when it refers to God. God is not three people. When we say person, we're talking about the way in which God identifies himself as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. When we use the word son about God, the Father, we're not using the word father and son the way we use father and son. Father and son here involves an act of procreation. For a father to have a son involves another party and then procreation. So when we talk about God as father and son, we're not using it the same way in our language, in the way we think. It's an entirely different category. Now, that's a that's to illustrate to you that, that you can understand why they might have found that hard to get their heads around a little bit. You'll never understand that. You will never totally comprehend that. You may be able to say it properly and clearly. It's not hard to say properly and clearly. God is not like us. I cannot describe God using my language in the same way that I use it when I'm talking about me and other people. These people, though, had switched off. Switched off. Paul, uh, the writer says, Freudian slip, wasn't Paul. The writer says that they were, had become lethargic. The word of God was not captivating their minds anymore. Secondly, it was that they were immature, he says. Because their spiritual dullness of hearing not only prevented their progress, it actually led to regression in their spiritual understanding. Because if we don't pay attention to the Word of God, we not only don't improve, but we lose what we already have. Read on with me. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. The oracles of God, those truths revealed supernaturally to the holy prophets and holy apostles, recorded in holy scripture. The oracles of God that speak about Christ, who is the, the, the sole sum and theme of all of Scripture. By this time, these people had been Christians for a while, but as time had passed, they'd made no progress. They had regressed. They're like the man who once boasted about being a Christian for 40 years, having 40 years' experience as a Christian. Usually that's what we, we draw that out when we're trying to impress or silence an argument with, with other people. Forty years. His minister interrupted by saying, you've had one year's experience of a Christian 40 times over. There are many of us never get beyond that first year's experience of believers. We've never progressed. These people had progressed a bit, but now they've regressed. And when he says, you ought to be teachers, he is telling them that they are culpable, their slowness to learn, their unwillingness to be diligent in learning the Word of God was culpable before God. And where did they find themselves? 
back at the beginning again, almost in a position where they need to be taught the beginning things all over again because of their foolishness. Now, he's not saying here, by the way, that every Christian has to be a theologian or or has to be at the high end of a theologian. He's not saying here that every Christian has to hold an office in the church, a teaching office in the church, but he is saying that every Christian, men, women, boys, and girls, as they learn the truth of God, should be able to speak about it to other Christian people and indeed teach other Christian people. Teaching goes on at so many levels, formal and informal, not just in the office, but all of us at one level or another are either taking it up and teaching other people the things we know and helping them on in their Christian life. Let me me illustrate it like this. It's not hard to do. It's not hard to do if you're passionate about it. Anybody can do this. Uh, In the United Kingdom, there is only one sport that dominates all the media, all the time, conversations everywhere. If you're not into this sport, you're excluded from civil society. You have nothing to say at garden parties. You are absolutely lacking in any coherent, interesting thing, uh, observation to make unless you are into this game, soccer, which is the most brain-destroying, demotivating, absurd, nonsensical passage of, I mean, really and truly, it is the most awful thing. And occasionally, what has happened to me is this. I have found myself in the company of someone, and I have made that fundamental, absolutely fundamental mistake of mentioning something that permits them in response to talk about soccer. (laughs) Well, that's the end of the afternoon or the evening for you. You're getting all the stories of all the the games of the past and the drops and the headers and the the inside forwards or backside levers or whatever they're called. I don't even know because I'm not interested. Can anyone get the idea I'm not interested? And how many scores this has got, this team has got, and who's at the top of the league and the bottom of the league, and who was last year and 10 years ago, and how many years it's been since England ever won a cup anywhere in the world? (laughs) Oh, my word. But you see, what that illustrates is this. If you know something, you're able to talk about it even if it bores the living daylights out of people. And that's the kind of thing, though, that he has in mind, that all of us should be able to talk about the Lord at one level or another. We should all be able to talk about the things of God. He's not saying you should all have a PhD in systematic theology. He's saying that all of us should know God and be able to speak about God to the level of our knowledge and experience. And if not... You see, he's saying to these people, they're immature, spiritually immature. Uh, Paul uses this language of immaturity when he's writing to the Corinthians. And he says to them, I can't write to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Because I fed you milk, not solid food, because you weren't ready for it. Why? Because there was jealousy and strife among you. Jealousy and strife among you. There's one of the marks of spiritual immaturity. 
When he's writing to the Ephesians, he uses the same language as he's writing to them. He says they're immature. What is the mark of the Ephesians being immature? The mark of the Ephesians is that they're being swept all over the place by every new idea of doctrine that's going around. They're constantly changing, constantly being bombarded with new ideas, and they're following absolutely every new thing that comes onto the scene. I remember when I was in Glasgow as the minister, while I was there in the church there for about 14, 15 years, during the time I was there, there were these waves that came across the Atlantic. There was the, uh, there was the Toronto blessing, the Pensacola, Pensacola awakening, there was the Kansas City prophets, there was uh, the, uh, the uh, John Wimber and his power evangelism and, and all across, across the Atlantic Ocean. Would you believe from who knows where they were coming uh, to crashing on our shores and the people were getting all worked up about this and that and the other thing. Tossed about with every wind of doctrine. That's a mark of immaturity. But here the mark of immaturity is that these people instead of making progress in their knowledge, were reverting back, wanting to go back to the beginning because deeper teaching was too much for them. You know, in the Bible, there are truths so shallow, like a little uh, pool in the beach that a child can paddle in them. And there are truths so deep that even an elephant would be out of its depth. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable are His ways. These truths that the writer has been giving them, these truths were rooted in God's wisdom, His manifest wisdom. They concerned the person, the work, the offices of our Lord Jesus Christ. They were important things. These are the principal, John Owen says, these are the principal parts of the gospel. And John Owen says, how sad it is if, for the church of God, if preachers and hearers should agree together in neglecting or showing contempt on the mysteries of the gospel. Well, that's where we may be this morning. But where must we be? Very briefly. Therefore, let us leave and go on. Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. There's nothing wrong with the elementary doctrine of Christ. He lists some of those things. He talks about repentance from dead works, turning away from the old ways, and faith toward God. That is faith toward God in Christ, of course. He talks about instructions about washings. These people particularly... In, at the period in which they'd become Christians, had to be helped to distinguish between the old Jewish baptism washings and John the Baptism's baptism and the baptism in the name of the Trinity that Jesus initiated and baptism in the Holy Spirit. They needed that kind of basic untangle what these various baptisms were. And the laying on of hands, the the resurrection of the dead, the eternal, eternal judgment. These were fundamental things, lying right at the very beginning and the very heart of the Christian life. There's nothing wrong with these things, but he says this to them. Let us leave these elementary... These are the door. We don't just stand hanging by the door. Let's press on. Let's go in and find out what there is within this great Christian message. Let us go on to maturity. 
They're to go on. They've started a journey. They're to move towards the end. What is the end of the journey? What is the goal of the journey? Why have we started this Christian walk? Well, it's perfection. And by perfection, we don't mean perfection absolutely considered. That's proper only to God. Nor do we mean the perfection that Jesus achieved by his absolutely marvelously obedient earthly life. But perfection relative to who we are as creatures, relative to our position now under the sun and this side of glory, there is a perfection to strive for. There is a goal to be reached. It is the movement from infancy to adulthood, from new life in Christ to mature life in Christ, and we are to press on into that. That's why Paul, for example, says about himself on one occasion, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. That's the business of the Christian life. This is where we must be. We must be on the journey. We must be growing up into maturity in Christ. And how do I know that I am growing? Well, I am being trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. I'm getting to grips with the Bible in such a way that I am now able myself to discern. I don't always have to send the pastor an email letter asking him what to do next. Though you're welcome to do that. You know that. You just have to wait till I get around to answering, but you are welcome to do that. And if it gets lost in the post, resend it regularly. But the, the point of maturity is you get to the place where you're able to work some of that stuff out for yourself. Where in your daily life, in your daily walk, in your home life, in your work with colleagues and so on and friends, you are able to discern, to distinguish between what is good doctrine and false doctrine, between what is right con conduct and wrong conduct. That's where maturity is. Getting to grips with God. Being diligent in hearing and holding on to the Word of God. And then by using it in your daily life, by using it in your decision-making, by using it in your thinking through of subjects, by using it, become proficient in the Word of God. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'd give us the grace of the Holy Spirit today to be those who, having begun, are pressing on to know you, our Lord. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.